Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you've come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and just a little bit of entertainment. There is a definite nip in the air this week. Autumn has arrived despite the talk of an Indian summer in Ireland. That lovely warm sun has disappeared and there's no sign of it returning anytime soon. I'm still managing to dip in Galway Bay nearly every day and hope to continue to do so well into the winter. I say that now, however, come November, I might just be chickening out. It's currently a balmy 14.8 degrees or so in the water at Black Rock. I'm really glad to say it's been busy here since the last episode and I'm delighted to be hosting a number of activities for Bike Week this week, supported by Galway City Council. We hosted our first ever Zwift ride on Monday night. 30 riders joined us online for cycling and chats on the greatest London flat route. There was lots of banter and fun on the spin and I think I'm going to hold a few more Zwift meetups. So if you are a Zwifter and fancy joining the fun, follow me over on the Zwift companion app and sure, why not join the Try Talking Sports Strava Club while you're at it? We have some great guests for our Bike Week Bonanza of live shows this week too, so be sure to check them out on www.trytalkingsport.com and you can watch the live shows on our Facebook page. I'm really hoping that the lineup of activities for the week will help to ignite and fuel a passion for racing, adventure and exploration on two wheels, regardless of current levels of interest in cycling. Speaking of passion for cycling and racing, what an incredible result for Sam Bennett in the Tour de France. It was simply superb. That final sprint in the Champs-Élysées in the green jersey gives me goosebumps each time I watch it. The sheer emotion and intense pride in Sam's voice in the post-race interviews is heartwarming and gives lots of hope for those following their passion for sport and chasing down big goals. Whilst the excitement and exuberance of celebrations will go on for quite a while in Sam's hometown of Carrick and Shore and indeed beyond, the triathlon community in Ireland was saddened very much with the tragic death of Port Marnock Triathlon Club's David Steele whilst out cycling on Saturday. The news sent shockwaves through our triathlon community here in Ireland, which, although spread around the country, is a very tight-knit one. David's passing is devastating for his wife Karen and family, as well as his triathlon family, especially those who trained and raced with him, many of whom are good friends of Tri Talking Sport. My thoughts and prayers go out to David's family, friends and fellow triathletes who lost a bright star over the weekend. This week's episode really is a Bike Week special. I was delighted to chat with Rachel Nolan, fresh from her fantastic win, the Transatlantic Way Ultra, a 2,200km self-supported bike race from Derry to Kinsale. Rachel has adventure and exploration coursing through her veins. Her passion for the outdoors and thirst for adventure is infectious and really knows no bounds. So much so that after spending many years working in the drinks industry abroad, she came home to Mayo to set up her own tour company, Rachel's Irish Adventures, providing the opportunity for her guests to enjoy tailor-made tours off the beaten path to experience, discover and taste the best of Ireland. With a keen interest in exploration and experiencing new cultures and places, she has travelled the world and participated in some great races, from the world's toughest race, the Eco Challenge in Fiji, to the Marathon de Sable, the Maya Mountain Challenge in Belize Adventure Race and the Slovenia Adventure Race. Closer to home, she has tackled the race in Donegal, the Beast Adventure Race and Coast to Coast Ireland. No mean feat by any stretch of the imagination. Added to that, her ultra-distance cycling and trail running event success is also hugely impressive. Her trophy and medal haul is something to write home about. 
In this episode, we get an insight into Rachel's training for the Transatlantic Way. We hear some funny stories from her recent epic adventures at home and abroad. We also get a snippet into the mindset of an athlete whose positivity is endless and her energy, passion and commitment to her office outdoors sees her as one of Ireland's leading female adventure athletes. Although we didn't discuss this in the show, it is incredible to think that when Rachel took part in the OCC in Chamonix a number of years ago, she ended up in a coma for over 40 hours after suffering from hyponatremia. Luckily, she woke up without suffering any brain damage. Enjoy the show. Rachel Nolan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Congratulations on that fantastic win. The first female winner of the Transatlantic Way Ultra and also the outright winner of the 2020 event. Thanks for having me on, Joanne. Yeah, it was a, it was a great event. Uh, definitely a battle right to the end with a lot of mind games within it. Uh, with the guys so yeah it was, I would call it a friendly battle to the end. So there was um, there was no international competitors this year? Yeah so this year given the situation with Covid it was just Irish residents only which you know did attract still quite a quite a good field. A lot of the guys would have done um, events they were supposed to do events in Europe and then you know had the training done so they came back a lot of them came back for a second and third time to do the Transatlantic Way. I don't know why they did that but... <laughs> But yeah, so um, so yeah, there was myself and eleven guys at the start line in Derry, and from the get go, I thought it was a nice, friendly cycling event. But everyone was talking about the race starting at ten a.m. Uh, so <laughs> once the race started, the race started, and um, I suppose for anyone who doesn't know, it's a it's a one stage event, um, over two thousand one hundred kilometers, twenty five thousand meters of climbing. Um, there were two checkpoints you had to hit: Fannet Head Lighthouse and Kittery Adventure Centre. Everyone downloads the route before you leave, so you have to follow a specific route. Um, there's penalty points then if you go off that. There was a few times I did slightly go off, and I, I had to convince myself not to carry the bike across the field to join the route that I had to come back on. Uh, yeah, and you basically make your way there as fast as you can. Um, so that's kind of it with all everything else that goes, all the challenges that go with it. And it's completely self-supported. Yeah, you stop and you do what you want when you want, I suppose. And that's, I think, kind of one of the bigger parts about it. So you decide when you want to sleep, where you want to sleep, if you want to bivy it, if you want to, you know, stop in a and b when you want to eat. Uh, so, yeah, that's as big as part of it, I suppose, as, you know, physically keep moving. <laughs> I'm going to come back and talk about the Transatlantic Way with you throughout the interview, Rachel. But before we get to, to the actual event itself and some of the intricacies of it, I'd love to go back a little bit and find out where did this passion for sport come from or where did this enthusiasm for the outdoors and adventure and exploring all come from? I suppose I played a lot of football growing up. I was definitely always team sports. I hated running unless it was after a ball and played with Mayo for a couple of years and played a lot of soccer as well and basketball. Um, and then when I went to college, I got the travel bug. Um, and uh, I got into adventure racing in 2010, just with like shorter multi-day, the likes of Gale Force, the Wicklow Adventure Race. And then someone who's big on the adventure racing scene, Paul Mahan, scouted me out, tested me on a 24 roll gain and nearly killed me. <laughs> Uh, ran the legs off me yeah after that I was hooked just the bond you create with people with adventure racing um like I'm definitely more even though the transatlantic way was great it's a solo event and uh, my passion is for team sports um and I think adventure racing really ticked every box you have you know mountain biking kayaking mountain running trekking you have a lot of tactics logistics you're with a team so the bond you create with that team is unbelievable and you get to travel and explore places that you would never see so 
you know, different to a triathlon where you know the route, you can train exactly for it. This is like, you know, much more of the unknown and it's definitely an adventure. Like nothing always goes right. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I suppose that's kind of how I got into the adventure racing and why I really like it as well. And I'd consider myself more of an adventure racer than, you know, a cyclist or a runner or anything else. Um, in fact, I don't really like running <laughs> uh, unless I'm, you know, exploring something. But just like I, I can't, I can't do the turbo. I hate, I hate the hamster idea of the turbo, or you know, been on a track or a treadmill. You know, I like, I suppose, the mountains, exploring new places. And as I said, like I kind of rather doing it to people. There's only so much you can have a chat with the sheep. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so it's it's obviously better if the experience is shared. And um, so I suppose that's kind of how I got into it, little by little, and then. Because with adventure racing, you have to have at least one male and one female on the team. Uh, I suppose I became a mandatory kit. <laughs> and the guys need to pull a woman in. And uh, as you get more experience and you have all the gear, um, it becomes easier. Um, and hopefully I'm a bit stronger than just being the mandatory kit at the moment. Oh, my um, God. You're way stronger than just being the <laughs> mandatory kit. I'm actually shocked that you're saying that. Uh, yeah so um so yeah like it's a great way of traveling and my lifestyle is kind of all about traveling exploring and you know I'm not super career focused um it's more about like meeting people and just enjoying the moment with no stress <laughs> <laughs> and you've turned that passion for the outdoors and for adventure and exploring into a full-time business as well yeah I moved back to Ireland uh, five years ago I was four years in France before that and then kind of slightly all over the place I moved consecutively every year for 12 years I was working in the drinks industry more so. Um, so I came back, bought a bus, um, a couple of bikes to start off with, and just set up a website, and that was it. And most of the clientele would be kind of Americans, Canadian, Australian, kind of further. But um, yeah, I speak uh, French and Spanish, so I get a bit of European as well. I'm learning kind of German, Italian, and Portuguese. I have a little, a little bit of a, a go on it. So, um, so yeah, like it's all tailor-made tours, so never two tours the same. Um, so it could be anything from, you know, looking up people's ancestors to, you know, trail running tours, cycling tours um, and everything in between. With food being a big element, oh, you know. <laughs> and, and obviously your experience in the drinks industry brings in that passion for whiskey, which I'm a fan of myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of private whiskey tasting and I do a bit of consultancy for startup distilleries and that on the side as well. Spice it up. Not, not too busy. Who wants to be too busy? You know, so always keeping keeping time to... Uh, to do what I want to do so that's kind of the, the main thing if you find a job you love you'll never work a day in your life yeah well I've definitely never worked <laughs> I can't I knew straight away I could never be in an office and they tried to put me in an office in, in Marseille in France for uh, it lasted a month and they couldn't understand me they basically gave me a car and sent me out uh, just not for me you know they couldn't understand me stretching in the seat and I wanted to start early and finish early and they couldn't couldn't accept that and <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't going to work out too well at all. I can't imagine you sitting in an office when really the outdoors is your office. Yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I just enjoy being, being out and kind of not, I don't really thrive or get in and out of routine. So, you know, kind of always looking, I'm, I suppose I'm a bit of an extremist when it comes to goal setting. <laughs> Um, for anything, you know, for personal life and everything. So. so what was the very first race that you did after 2010, kind of getting hooked into the sport? I actually think it was a, it was a Wicklow adventure race, and I did it with a good buddy of mine, Linda, who I've done a lot of my events with up until probably about three years ago. We've done a lot together, even solo events. We've just teamed up um, and had a lot of fun. Um, so I remember doing that on an old hybrid bike, and she was trying to figure out how to work the gears. 
we nearly killed each other. Um, but we stuck together for the whole thing. And then a couple of weeks later, I did a, I did a Nimra run up in um, Carlingford. I think it was only five kilometers. And I just never suffered. Even to this day, I don't think I've ever suffered so much running up a hill. And then I trained for it and I came back. I came back the year later and did the half marathon and won it. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of got hooked on on the whole thing really and what about kit and things like that Rachel is there a specific kit that you need to get you know obviously with triathlon we go down a particular route with regards to lycra and aerodynamics and bikes and everything yeah. like from head to toe there's something for every piece of your body nearly but in adventure racing is it similar uh no definitely not it's all about comfort <laughs> so uh so yeah for example uh i actually stupidly only put tri bars on uh my bike a week before the event the transatlantic way which definitely was not enough time to test them out and i was uh, yeah i didn't really want tri bars but it was actually more, only just for another position on the bike so i didn't get hand plosy i don't know if you know what that is kind of numb hand which is quite common in long distance cycling uh from the vibrations yeah so i put them on and got risers to put them up Porik Murray, who's in Westport, he fitted them out for me and he said, this is a waste of time. Sure, there's no aero. You're up, you know. And I said, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want. But sure, there's no point in putting them on. I said, no, just want another position just so I can fall asleep, you know. <laughs> so, uh, no, it's definitely not all about aero. It's definitely about more comfort um, and preventing injury during the events is a big one. So you have to look after your feet a lot. You know, your gear is important. Like I have a titanium Van Nicholas bike, which I absolutely love. I would not ride a carbon bike in any of these events. I also have a, a titanium mountain bike because I do crash and you do have accidents and everything. And you don't want it to be another problem that the frame is going to break as you're transporting it maybe to, you know, the other side of the world. So that's another side of things. So, yeah, I would definitely compromise comfort over, over weight. And then with gear, like I'm lucky enough, Columbia give me a lot of gear. I really like their especially the waterproof gear. Yeah, like gear is important, but it's definitely not everything. When you're getting ready to go, say, for example, on the Transatlantic Way or the Eco Trail in Fiji, you know, how do you know what kind of gear to, to bring with you? Is it a case of trial and error or is there like mandatory kit lists and things that the race organiser give you? And how do you manage all of that kit when you're self-supported then as well? Uh, well, for, for the adventure racing, yeah, there is a mandatory kit. Um, so they tell you what you need. Like, for for Fiji, for example, there was uh, quite a lot of climbing in it, so we had to bring over our climbing gear and like ascenders and stuff, which I'd never done before. And we had to go and get certain certificates to prove that we could do it for safety, and um, whether that be like kind of white water rafting, river safety, or different styles of climbing, because they wanted to do it a certain way for safety reasons. So yeah, that's kind of the adventure racing. And then for the transatlantic way, like for me, it's definitely trial and error. You know, I definitely made a lot of mistakes as well, but. Uh, but at the end of the day, like you just kind of get on with whatever you have. It's not everything. Like I remember doing um, coast to coast. I've done it three times, which goes from Inniscrown over to the Moorn Mountains. I did it for three years. And I remember before going into, uh, went into the toilet and there was a few guys there who were all triathletes from Balna. And he goes, are you wearing that jacket starting off? And I said, yeah, why not? And he goes, and the hood's slinging out and it's too big for you. I said, geez, sure. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect, sure, to keep me dry for a couple of hours, you know, <laughs> like. You know, not that it makes a difference over the space of like 20 hours, like having a hood out, like who cares? <laughs> you know, it's the least of my worries having the hood sticking out. <laughs> so yeah, definitely a different mindset to uh, to triathlons. Yeah, I wouldn't be speedy enough for the triathlons anyway. It's too, um, uh, as, a, as a buddy of mine says, balls out, which is definitely not me. I'm mad for, I'd be wanting to stop for the chat and the coffee. <laughs> so. Is that Lorraine Carey? 
That's her, yeah. <laughs> we have to give Lorraine a mention. She has a question coming up later on in the show. Uh, I know Lorraine for a long time. She's a great athlete herself as well. Yeah, I did a lot of my training with her over the years, actually. So, yeah, we are opposites. Um, so <laughs> she, she can stick herself right into the red, whereas um, I'll comfortably stay in every other colour except the red. <laughs> so with the likes of the transatlantic way then um were you on a particular heart rate or were you working off power or do you just go off your own feel of, of how you feel you're doing in the in the race so it's probably somewhere else i'm different i've never used a heart monitor i've never used a parameter i got one the day before literally i started and it's on my bike but i don't know if it worked i don't even know if it was on uh, I actually borrowed a Garmin off Lorraine and bought a Wahoo the week before to set up the navigation and luckily it worked. So uh, usually I just go out and cycle. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not really into the technology side of things, which would, would probably help me if I was, but I also think it's a huge distraction. So I go a lot on feeling. Um, so for the Transatlantic Way, it was the first time ever I got a coach, um, which was female-specific training for 12 weeks. And I trained, that was my life, <laughs> basically. Uh, I cycled and did yoga, nothing else. I gave up running, I gave up everything. And I definitely had a very specific training plan, but I did it all on feeling. So going pretty similar to the zones, one to five, one been your sleep, five men your get me an ambulance uh, and kept a two or four for the training. But I did it all on feeling. I think that's a, a huge benefit because I'm not looking at numbers and maybe I don't, those numbers don't reflect how I'm feeling and now I'm pushing myself to a number. So, um, so yeah, I just go like totally on feeling and if I'm feeling good, I'll power on. If I'm feeling good and I just want to chill out, I'll, you know, so it's, um, for the longer stuff, I think it's, for me, it's more beneficial to know your body better. And it's a huge advantage if you do actually, you can be nice to your body and kind of understand where it is because it's not always at the same place every day. No, I don't have any of those technology things at all. I'm just a bit old school. <laughs> and were you, were you a good student listening to the coach? Did you do what you were told when you were told to do it? Or because you've been doing this so long now, did you kind of go, you know, some of the sessions, oh, I'm definitely not doing that. Or, geez, that's cracked. I'm not pushing myself up to that zone five. No, so this um, woman, she's Canadian. Uh, I met her once. I met her actually out in Fiji. She's probably one of the most experienced adventure racers in the world. Um, ran with Salomon International for years. And I talked to her for about two seconds and we had one call uh, and she just got me. Like she is the same mindset. She's adventure racing mindset. Um, and I didn't need to speak to her again. Um, so she sent me on. So it's female specific. So it's going on your cycle. So it's really kind of using your body to your strength. Uh, as a female so it's like this whole thing of you know women are not small men <laughs> going by that I literally went to like the kilometer of what she told me um so like there were days here where I was out doing like a thousand kilometer in three days through that there was a crazy storm a couple of weeks ago I was up at four in the morning and pe they were warning people not to go out I was out on the bike uh had to cross a couple of floods up knee deep but uh I was out there getting the kilometers done even if it took me an extra couple of hours I didn't miss one training session. Um, never got sick, never got injured. So, yeah, she had me, like, it was pretty perfect. I was really benefiting, but not going over the top. And did she work off how you were feeling as well, Rachel, you know, yeah. and, and where you were within your menstrual cycle? Yeah, yeah, that was it, yeah. So, like, from from day, like, two, day one, uh, just after you get your period, your your strength, it's like a lot of high intensity, a lot of strength. You're recovering faster. And then towards the end of it, it's like, you know, very, very light. So you're kind of looking after yourself more because that's where you can get injured more. 
um, and you just feel like shit, I suppose. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, that was it. And that was the first time I ever did that. And I learned a massive amount myself, even just about kind of being gentle with your body as well and knowing when to push it and when not to push it just to gain more strength and kind of make the most of the training as well. And did you work your nutrition around that as well, Rachel, in terms of your cycle, like the different types of foods that you would eat and tie that into your training? Did that all kind of knit together? Yeah, so I used to always go out in the morning without eating, which was the stupidest thing ever now thinking back of it. Like even like I'd go out for like a two hour run, probably do it up to two hours anyway without eating it and because I have a really slow digestion. So I was like, oh, I'm definitely doing better. And I never had a digestion problem, but I didn't realize that I also wasn't maximizing my training. So I will now and did always get up, you know, an hour earlier or whatever it is and definitely eat something um, and try and have that like something with protein in it anyway and carbs. Um, whether that's like, I don't know, I got a bit addicted to peanut butter. I don't know if you know the Nutshed, the, the two girls that have that company. Anyway, I, I eat kilos of the stuff. <laughs> I'm hoping to be sponsored by them someday. Uh, yeah, so anyway. Give them another shout out there now. We might send the podcast to them. Yeah, yeah, the nutshell, yeah, the, the crunchy one is the best. I've actually eaten like a kilo of the stuff in the last three days, so it's an addictive, I have to hide it in the press. <laughs> so yeah, even that with banana and like brown bread or whatever it is before you go out and, and coffee, and just to kind of move to the digestive system. So yeah, that was one of the things I changed with nutrition, I would always eat before I go out, and the difference in my training, I could see it like immediately, um, eating beforehand, because it's very different for men and women, that's another difference women need to eat before you go out it's very different to the guys who have like fight or flight and they burn off fat what happens then the women come in they eat and it stores because they don't know when they're when they're going to get food next so yeah it's very different and then like immediately the minute i come in i'm eat, i'm having protein i'm vegetarian so i don't eat meat um i eat a ridiculous amount of cottage cheese i don't know why i have an addiction to cottage cheese but i do <laughs> So, yeah, like the minute I come in from training, within five or ten minutes, I've had like at least 20 grams of protein um, and then more on top of that. But um, like that's why I like the cycling. It is a bit like a moving buffet. Um, I've probably put on about six kilos since I've started cycling and stopped running. But like I've just expanded my thighs and my ass because like you can just stop and eat all the time. Whereas with the, <laughs> with, the with the running, like, you know, you just you kind of I kind of slender down a bit because I can't eat while I'm running. And um, do you ever get um, GI issues? you know st intestinal or stomach issues yeah. when you're racing yeah I had huge issues for years and it's actually it's actually kind of gone away um I don't drink cow's milk and I think that's kind of helped a lot um I kind of just on the almond milk um but I eat everything like I love food <laughs> you know <laughs> I live for those uh, coffee and cake stuffs really <laughs> I know all the best coffee and scone places in the west of Ireland like if you ever want to know like the best even petrol delis I have them all down to a tea uh, I've tried and tested a couple of times. I know most of the people behind the deli by name at this point. Um, but yeah, I don't really suffer from that a lot. But um, I suppose I don't eat meat. And that was something that probably didn't suit me a lot, stayed in my digestive, stayed in the system a lot. Um, and I don't eat processed foods in general. Like I kind of, I am mad for the, the home bacon, bit of banana bread and scones and whatever else. But but yeah, I've never even tried a gel or anything like that. I wouldn't go near it. Like, I don't know why people would have a gel. You know, food is so nice and then they're having this gooey stuff, um, which is probably okay for, for shorter stuff if you want a bit of a boost. But for the longer stuff, it's definitely not. Um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't just keep having gels all the time. That brings me into talking about your trip to Fiji and that eco challenge. 
how did you feed yourself while you were in the in the midst of the race and how did you manage all of your food or maybe do you want to go back and tell us maybe a little bit about the event before we start talking about the specifics around feeding yeah <laughs> so so yeah the eco challenge it hadn't been on since uh, 2002 it's kind of i suppose what started off adventure racing um worldwide and it was with discovery channel so amazon prime sponsored it um and it is available to watch you can get a seven day free trial um and watch the 10 episodes um 66 teams went out from all around the world we were the only irish team out there and again it's made up of four people three of those people had to be uh, irish uh, and you have to have at least one male and one female and on this occasion we had a team assistant crew attack person uh, we saw four different camps throughout the 10 days. They move your bag, but whatever you put in that bag, you can only have a certain size box. Whatever you bring out there, that's all you have. But they moved it, so we saw them every couple of days, depending on how fast or slow you are. These races, it's all map and compass, so it's not a specified route. Um, everyone ends up taking kind of a varied route to get to their where they want to go. So you do cross paths with teams, but a lot of the time you're just you're pretty much out there on your own. You start at the starting line, they give you the map, and they give you the map from there to the next camp, and you navigate yourself to there, whether that be by, you know, water, foot, on the bike, climbing, whatever it is, and then, you know, you get to the next place. So whatever food you have in your bag, you have in your bag. So when you were in the camps, we had, like, expedition-style food, so, like, add hot water and, and kind of have that. Otherwise, like, kind of bits of air, bits of everything. <laughs> like, I kind of went off. It was kind of interesting because... um. I, I used to love nuts and dried fruits, and I just couldn't stomach them out there then. After filling all the bags up, I was <laughs> distraught. I couldn't eat them. You kind of mix it up a little bit. Uh, like, I'm a huge fan of potatoes. When I do any anything with potatoes, I eat a lot of, like, potato bread and stuff, pancakes. Uh, I eat a lot of pancakes. Love pancakes, actually. And then, like, if you have the opportunity to, like, get a make a sandwich before you can leave, or if you're, like, we had a team assistant crew there, so if you have the opportunity to eat anything like that, um, I try and stay away from like only sugar stuff because, you know, first of all, your gums, they end up getting ulcers as well. Um, but too much sugar will just, you know, for the stomach and your, your actual mouth, you need food that you can digest easy. So it has to be softer. Like in the transatlantic way, by, by day three, I was eating almost baby food. I couldn't I couldn't eat anything else. So I was stopping at the deli's and getting mashed potato with gravy, vegetables. Like I couldn't really eat anything that was anyway acidy or hard. It's mad. I'm actually just thinking about your mouth because you think about your feet in an adventure race. You think about maybe saddle sores in a biking race and your muscles generally. But you forget about your mouth and how that could be affected by the food that you're ingesting. I'd never think about the mouth ulcers and even brushing your teeth must have like it probably didn't even happen over the course of the adventure. Yeah, like I think one of the key things with the longer stuff is keeping like every type of hygiene to the highest. Like, whether that be like if you ever like in the transatlantic way, I made a decision to stop every night and have a shower, uh, which for me was a great decision. You know, I didn't have any saddle sores, I didn't have anything like because it's slashing rain the whole time. It was just horrific the weather, but I try to keep like you know that there's uh, as little bacteria as possible because that's what creates problems. So that was kind of a decision there. And then with the eco challenge, you definitely try and brush your teeth as often as you can. Um, or bring mouthwash or something to but yeah you said about the feet the feet is like probably one of the most important parts in adventure racing so um i go to this rapidus like a couple of times a year for like literally a haircut <laughs> they take off all the skin i started doing this when i did i think i don't know what year i did the marathon de sable i don't know it's 2015 maybe um i got a tip to put on um some putching on the bottom of the feet 
like real putchy, like 70% alcohol. I've kept with doing that. So for about two weeks beforehand, every night I get some cotton wool and, and rub uh, some like pure alcohol on the bottom of the foot. Uh, and it makes it really hard. Uh, so it's very difficult if there's no, if the skin is softer underneath, like you've gotten rid of every, anything. Um, it's very difficult to get blisters then. And then just air out the feet as much as you can when you're when you're doing the events. If you get the opportunity to take off your shoes and socks and take them off, change your socks as often as you can, even if you're going back into wet, whatever it is, just because the bacteria builds up in your socks. It must have taken a bit of coordination and organisation to get to the very start of the Eco Challenge. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. So um, so it was myself and, and uh, there was four guys. So there was Jason Black, Robbie Heffernan from down in Kilkenny, and then Mark Latanzi, who's was a huge addition. He's he's from the US, um, and an unbelievable navigator and great experience. And then we had Ivan Park, who's from Coleraine, and he was our assistant team assistant crew. So even just getting the team together was probably actually the toughest part. Trying to get an Irish team together where everyone is committed, available. That's actually the toughest part. <laughs> Besides for that, like you know, everything else is logistics. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, for sure so like hopefully we'll get into Patagonia and we fight for Patagonia for next year and yeah we made a lot of mistakes so it's definitely definitely learn from everything from gear to training to actually getting to know each other (laughs) before we went out there it's probably a big one (laughs) doing some training together but yeah look getting to the starting line is the toughest part once you get to the starting line you know you manage things and what was it like standing on the start line of the challenge? I read a little bit on your blog and it just sounds like it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Like, it's just, uh, I suppose, an adventure race, like, amplified, you know? Like, the money that Amazon spent on some of the challenges, like, even all those Fijian boats, they got handmade for the event. Each one of them handmade, 66 of them. And then left them there for the Fijians, uh, like the old traditional boats. And um, like the scale of the climbing that we did is just unbelievable. You know, the whole thing was just, you know, to have a budget that big to set up in a, a big playground of adventure is just massive. Um, so, yeah, look, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was really, really cool. And what was the scariest bit of the whole adventure? Well, unfortunately, we didn't get to finish it. Um, so that was probably the, the, the worst point for me. Um, Jason, unfortunately, got sepsis and got blood poison and nearly died and had to get airlifted out into Fiji and then it kept spreading so he actually had to get then privately airlifted to Auckland to the disease clinic where he spent a couple of weeks and he's fully recovered now obviously he was doing the transatlantic way that was actually the point where you're going we are at the last camp we've everything done the next section was so easy we just had to cross the finish line we were over 20 hours before the cutoff and even at that we had been moving so slow um, up until then like there was a big gap with our abilities in the team um we definitely didn't all have the same experience and ability and that was really really tough Robbie then ended up getting really bad uh, foot rot trench foot to an extreme like I never saw a guy been able to suffer so much pain he was phenomenal um, but that was an onset of different reasons because we had spent you know extra time in water and carrying bags and everything because we hadn't trained together as a team so that was probably the the weakest point there. So what was the scariest point? Um, geez, I don't think I was really scared at any point. That was just more of the part where it was like emotionally destroying because you've gotten this far, you've come out here, you're feeling fine, but one of your teammates is down, you know, uh, and there's nothing you can do. That's the way it is. It's a team event. Um, and that's why why these events are amazing because you create these bonds that, you know, if one is down, we're all down. 
and if one is up we're all moving <laughs> so it's uh yeah so I wouldn't say it was probably a scary moment I'm not really um I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie I don't really uh once things get going I don't really have much of a fear I just just go for it <laughs> so so yeah I don't think I was actually afraid at any time and in terms of the I suppose the the terrain and everything that you went through what would stick out in your mind as some of the highlights of the adventure because you were kayaking you were paddleboarding you were going through canyons I mean I read stories of where you were carrying the bikes and they were covered in red clay there was so much rain <laughs> during the adventure and your blog is very vivid so I'd recommend anybody who wants to find out more about the adventure to go onto your website and look at that blog because it is it's absolutely fantastic and very well written not that I would ever be able to do an adventure race of that nature but it almost you know it's it's really really good just to read it and to hear about the experiences that you had in the race itself yeah I suppose the the climbing section was just unreal I've never you know climbed up like a thousand feet uh, on a waterfall on ascenders where you know no one can hear you sorry Rachel explain to us what ascenders are because for many of us we don't know what they are yeah, sorry. So you're you're basically you put on your own harness uh, and you're roped in, and then your kind of feet are in a rope, uh, two different ropes, and you're literally step by step walking upwards uh, on the cliff edge, kind of on the side of a waterfall. And um, you're telling me you never got scared? Uh, no, like either. Well, it's too late. If you're scared there now, you're amazing. <laughs> you're very stuck. Like, so you have to kind of have positive thoughts, you know. Like I have very little experience in climbing. It's probably one of the areas where I was like, ah, oh, sure, you're fine. Um, even though I went and did the cert and everything. But yeah, once you get clipped in, you're clipped in, like, you know. And I think I could have been like five hours trying to get to the top. Um, so you're on your own for all that time. And for a lot of it, you can't see anyone and no one can see you. You know, you're up the side of a waterfall. So um, so yeah, that was, that was definitely uh, a part that you wouldn't get in all adventure races, you know. Um, but there's always an element of surprise in all of them, whether that be like, you know, they could stick in rollerblading or horse riding or whatever else. And that's kind of the, the fun part of it as well, that you get to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And you have an application yeah. gone in for Patagonia for 2021? Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we'll see what happens. There'll be a lot of applications in anyway. So You weren't you know. um, scarred for life after the last experience? I'm scarred if I don't get back in. <laughs> it's a good attitude. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> So let's talk about things closer to home. The Transatlantic Way Ultra started Thursday two weeks ago. So it'll be a little while ago uh, by the time this show comes out. But um, it normally starts kind of in Dublin. You make your way up to Derry and then you start uh, the Derry route down to Kinsale. But this year it was shortened, starting in Derry and down to Kinsale. And you battled winds, rain, every type of weather, the hills. Talk us through what it was like in the race. Uh, yeah, so they changed the route. I think he's going to stick with this now. I uh, hope he won't kill me for saying this, but I'm pretty sure he's going to stick with it from Derry because that bit from Dublin to Derry is probably not the most exciting. But um, yeah, as he shortened it, he decided to add in another little section as well. So, um, you know, it definitely wasn't that easy. He added in Fanned Head, which hadn't been planned to add in at all. Uh, he originally didn't put that in because when he started it up in 2016, there was the Donegal Rally on. So they were avoiding that section. So there was a lot of extra hills, even though we didn't get that tailwind up from Dublin to Cavan. He uh, he added in an extra couple of hills. So yeah, the weather was very Irish, uh, which suited me perfect because I had all my training done in this crazy weather. Not that I am a sun goddess, but um, <laughs> yeah, like this is Irish weather and this is where we're living. So I'm quite lucky that I'm located on the route in Balna, so you know I, I've trained in this like I've done all my training in this weather so I was prepared for it 
Um, yeah, but the route so takes you through Donegal, which, you know, really explodes people. And you saw that after people kind of dropping out after the first day or two. Um, people just go because they're full of energy. So they kind of let loose and the hills are just relentless and it's constant headwind going from north to south. If anyone wants to do it and wants a nice holiday, I would advise to go south to north <laughs> and get the tailwind to push you off a bit because there was definitely a headwind for us the whole way. Yeah, the weather was was ridiculous. Like in, in Donegal, it was definitely crazy winds and, you know, constant headwind and just been wet all the time takes its toll on the body because uh, obviously you're, you're tensed up quite a lot as well, especially kind of in the neck and shoulders area. And then from there down the whole way, um, kind of once I hit Sligo, I knew I'd be fine. I was kind of on home ground. Then, you know, heading down towards Ackle Island was, was always tough. You know, there's never anything easy about Ackle Island. I don't know if it's ever not windy there. But again, it's my training ground. I know it inside out. And yeah, down, head down then, get the furry. Um, I think when I arrived into Killary, that was probably the game changer. I actually cycled in there with Peter, who came second. I'd met Peter early in the day and he wanted to give up. And I told him to go and get some knee bandages and get on with it. Uh, which he did, and he thanked me for later. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we actually cycled across Dulac Valley together, and I sang, blasted out the, the green and red of Mayo and gave him a bit of a guided tour. I don't know what he thought he was in for, seeing as he's originally German, and <laughs> not wondering what this woman is doing, we're racing here. Uh, so we arrived into Killary together, and he went for sleep, and that was a game changer. I had actually read a blog previously of the two girls competing against each other last year, and one of them was asleep and the other one came in and went to sleep. And I was like, God, I'd never go to sleep if I went in there. You know, and someone else was in there. So uh, I uh, I actually had my accommodation previously booked anyway. So I knew I was moving on. So he went to sleep and I headed out and cycled on to Clifton. So when he woke up the next morning, I was 50k ahead of him. And Donica arrived in and apparently wanted to move on. But the organizer said, look, it's not a bad option to sleep here. So that's where the kind of game changer was with the with the mind games. And that's where it started. There was a lot of mind games after that. Is that when the racing kind of really kicked in then, Rachel? Yeah, that's when I decided I'd kind of push on a bit then. Um, well, just like, you know, Donegal, I really held back because I know the Donegal Hills, it's only the first two days, like you're only warming up. <laughs> and I was having good fun watching the guys trying to kill each other uh, up front, you know. So, yeah, I, I definitely kind of held back and I probably faffed around a lot as well. I kind of stopped too much in shops and I was probably secretly trying to avoid the rain, which was inevitably not going to stop. <laughs> you know, that extra coffee for five minutes, you know. And um, once I kind of hit Killary then, I knew I had to go down and get that furry. And I thought that if I got the furry that night, it would really help. But as it happens, Peter got it the next day and he made massive ground. Like he's a, he's a really, really strong cyclist. And I happened to meet him in County Clare again, where he was in the ditch with his shoes off, a piece of his tooth broken out, lying sprawled on the ground. And I stopped and he said, I'm a broken man again. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, my phone's broken. My tooth's broken. My heart's is killing me. <laughs> he, had somehow, he had somehow let oil fall down into the back of his shorts. <laughs> So he had them in his he had them in his uh, saddle pack and the oil that he had <laughs> to, uh, to to clean his chain had spilled on the chamois of his shorts. <laughs> Ouch! So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so he was definitely suffering. So uh, anyway, I, get, I got off the bike and gave him a big hug um, with, with the masks, of course. Told him to, to to rest up, and we had a bit of a laugh. And uh, he actually had a good sleep. And after that, he was pretty much unstoppable. I was just lucky that I had to had the lead because the, the distance that he made up then was just unreal. He just pulled an all-nighter then and just, 
he was bombing it. That Tuesday night, uh, we were expecting you to finish at around three in the morning coming into the Wednesday. And yeah, Peter yeah. was a good, like it was a good hundred and something kilometres behind you. And then when we woke up on Wednesday morning, it was like, OK, she's not finished yet, but Peter's actually only about 30k behind her. What's going on? Yeah, you know, when yeah. we were watching the doc. Yeah, I had actually planned, like I had planned a whole event, uh, like down to the kilometre pretty much. So it just happened that it worked out that I was, you know, up with the guys. But I had actually all my accommodation booked before I even left. Um, so I had my sleep strategy planned that I needed to sleep a minimum of an hour and a half a night. Um, now, I can pull an all-nighter, but I knew I wouldn't be as efficient. I had actually thought about going all night and I would have arrived at about 3 a.m. But I thought that because I was getting Shermer's neck and, you know, it's going another night with all your lights and everything. I was like, right, OK, maybe I should just recharge things have a shower and sleep for an hour uh, and move on. And even if he does put me to the race, I reckon I can get him because I'll be fresher. Now, that was a bit of been a bit probably overconfident or maybe just like that's what I plan to do. So even if he passes me out, this is my race. It's not racing against someone. This is what I can do to be my best, you know. Um, and if he ends up coming in ahead of me, then, you know, that's that's his best, you know. Um, so, so yeah, so I had a snooze and then he was actually within eight kilometers of me. But I had it convinced that I could see his headlights after I left about 20k after school. So we're probably about 100k to go. I convinced myself, I don't know how, like gone completely whacked, that he would follow me and I could see his headlights. And I think it was actually house lights I've seen all the time. So I pretty much did a sprint for about 40k. Um, one of my brakes didn't work because... I had taken grass out under the wheel and I forgot to put down the little the little clip thing for the front wheel. So I couldn't understand why my front brake wasn't working, but that was the reason. Quite stupid, but I was a bit sleepy. And yeah, I pretty much did a sprint for 40k till I realized he wasn't behind me. But within that, I had two pretty bad crashes. One into a sand pit randomly going down a hill and uh, like probably about 40, 50 kilometers an hour and went straight into a sand pit. Uh, which was on the road, which is a bit random. Uh, and then another one into like uh, barriers and that. But anyway, I got up and I was fine. Got a flat tire, pumped it up. There was that goo stuff in it. So it survived. Uh, all the treading, the rubber part is off the back of my wheel. So I was just on the tread. So I was lucky to be able to keep going. Stupidly, I sacrificed my spare tire after day one because I thought it was too heavy. <laughs> so I didn't have a spare tire anyway. <laughs> so I was really running on minimum, uh, like gear wise and stuff. Like I was, um, I was pretty much taking taking a bit of a chance um but peter actually had a crash as well and lost his tracker and i don't think he would have caught me anyway but uh, anyway i arrived in about two and a half hours before him so there wasn't actually a huge margin between us and was it exciting aside from the crashes but was it exciting having that final competitive bit at the end to race oh, yeah. to make sure that you got there because you could have just rolled in and won it comfortably but having that battle with peter did it did it make it finish on an even bigger high than if you had just rolled in and won it by 100k? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Like the last 30k, I was really, took it really, really easy down around Old Head and that area. Like I was just cru cruising around. Yeah, up until then, I was I was pretty much flat out. I got a, just an adrenaline rush and I was, but the problem was I had Shermer's neck. So I was actually using one hand to hold my neck up while I was cycling. Uh, so it was a bit crazy. And I had a technique going downhill because I couldn't hold my head up. So I had a technique, which is, I don't advise it, it's probably pretty dangerous, but uh, I basically leaped my hips up against the, the front bar and held my body upright uh, and put my hand on the brake while I was going downwards. So I basically kind of kneeled down and put my body up against the bar because I couldn't put my head down or I wouldn't have come back up. <laughs> Mother so, of God. 
So yeah, it was a bit of fun. So Shermer's neck is not fun for anyone. Uh, it's definitely it's it's something that's quite scary actually because you know muscle pain and everything you can get over, but this is like it it would stop you, you know, from from moving on. It's just too dangerous. But um, surprisingly, my legs. I did the last hill going up that back hill that he puts in after Kinsale, like I did the first hill in Donegal. My legs, no knee problem, no leg soreness, no nothing. Even like the day after, you know, up and down stairs. I went for a five k run the day after, just as a a bit of a cool down. Legs are hundred percent. So, so the training definitely worked. <laughs> so, are you fully recovered now? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling good. Ready to go again. No, no, I kind of like take the winters off, you know, and just uh, just kind of relax. I do a lot of yoga and I'll kind of just get back into the running and hiking and be a bit more sociable with friends rather than, you know, speeding off doing my, my training. I was definitely, it kind of worked well because I needed some kind of a goal during the COVID because um, like work-wise it was pretty quiet and I kind of have to have something to aim for. Otherwise, everything else in life for me is better if I have some sort of a focus on something. <laughs> so yeah, I think I'll go back to being a little bit more sociable now. And <laughs> because it is all-consuming. When you are doing things at the level that you're doing it, it does become very much all-consuming in terms of your living, breathing, sleeping, eating. Everything is towards that goal. Yeah, yeah. Like I trained, very, I never trained like that before, specifically for something. And it definitely was 12 weeks that it took up, like it was definitely the priority for me. Whereas usually with adventure racing, you're kind of just tipping along, doing a bit of everything. But I just said, you know, I just wanted something to focus on. And this was kind of a good, a good distraction. <laughs> well, we have some questions that our listeners have sent in to us. Now, some of them may have been answered already, but we'll go through them anyway. Um, so Lorraine Horan asks, uh, do you prefer team or solo races and why? Uh, yeah, so as I said, like definitely the definitely the team events are better for me. I think I'm actually stronger on a team than I am individually. I, I don't have a lot of words to all the songs, but I know a lot of songs. Uh, so, um, and uh, sure, I love the chat. You know, <laughs> it's a great way to get to know someone. You know, like you you get to know somebody when you're racing with them better than you'll ever get to know them. You seem to open up in a different way, um, and you're out there for the same reason. You're kind of really living the moment and you know, your goal is getting to that next point. Yeah, so like I definitely think I'm definitely more of a team event person. And in terms of managing the personalities, Rachel, the gang of you that went to the Eco Challenge, you said you hadn't um, trained together, you didn't really know each other. Was that a difficult piece of the whole journey in that you didn't know the telltale signs when somebody was down or maybe when somebody was getting a bit delirious or when sleep deprivation was kind of kicking in, that you didn't know those little idiosyncrasies that might have helped along the journey? And how do you manage the personality clashes where one might be stronger at one aspect than the other and then you're trying to keep everyone together and to keep cohesive as a team yeah so that's usually not much of a problem I usually I, I've jumped on to a lot of teams French teams Swiss teams um where I've been the new person and I'm pretty happy to adapt to other people's uh let's say kind of characters and so on I think I'm pr pretty good at that but um yeah the eco challenge that was our main challenge because uh you know I went out there with three guys who don't know each other which I will never do again because you know, like, not, nothing against guys, but it's it's a very different way, you know. No one wants to show, oh, I'm suffering, take my bag. Uh, whereas a guy who will know you, they'll be like, yeah, Rachel, take the bag, you know. <laughs> they, they know you, there's no ego. So yeah, that was a huge problem, um, that we didn't know each other, and you couldn't really tell those signs. Um, and that's really what our problem, our main weakness was in, in Fiji. Um, and that's why you should really train with your team. But look, we did the best we could. We got a team together. And at the time, that was the kind of the best situation that we could get just to get out there. 
Um, but yeah, it's super important. Like you know your when you know your teammates, you know they don't even need to tell you something. You know straight away, and they will be very. I think once you're on a team that is very much together, everyone is very humble, and you know if they have a problem, they're going to tell you. Because you can only move as fast as the slowest person. So it's almost selfish not to tell the person if you have a problem. Karen Cassidy asks, uh, do you get nervous being on your own at night in the middle of a race, sleeping on the side of the road or bivvying? Or, or do you, you didn't do any of that for the transatlantic way, though, this time, did you? I didn't, but like I have done a lot. I do bivvy it a lot and uh, I kind of enjoy it, actually. Uh, I've ended up in some really random spots <laughs> between different kind of cow sheds and doorways of schools and seeing other churches open and <laughs> yeah lots of random ones but um, on this occasion and I think this was really kind of looking back probably a smart idea because it's September there's a lot less daylight than in June so it's very different and given the situation there's no pubs open like I've often gone into a pub and persuaded them to let me stay the night <laughs> under the chair <laughs> more than just adventure racing and this event I decided not to bivy it uh, and did book the accommodation which as I said was a really good idea if it was in June I probably would have thought differently and I probably would have cycled longer like as in I wouldn't have stopped so much in the dark like everything changes lights as I said the pubs aren't open there's not many people on the street you can't just rock up to places at the moment if things are wrong like people don't really appreciate it that much do I get nervous no I, I absolutely love it I love night biking uh, love mountain biking in the night as well and um, mountain running um, especially if the weather's good it's a bit miserable if the weather is crap but I did have a few places in the transatlantic way that I did not want to be on my own in the dark if stuff went wrong and I had planned that accordingly such as the Gap Low down in Kerry there was a couple of places I did end up kind of in the dark on my own and like it's not a big deal like Glen Vey National Park I had to run the bike for about 3k down the bridle path it's like a it's definitely not made for my bike um, so I just got off the bike and ran it in lashing rain, kind of side wind. Um, so if something happens, you're you're fairly screwed. Like, but um, but you're like if you thought like that altogether, you wouldn't you probably wouldn't get up out of bed in the morning. <laughs> so no, I kind of I, I kind of enjoy the the night side of things. You see all the animals come out and uh, no, I like that. Keen Walsh asks, what is your fueling and sleeping strategy during ultra distance races? And Lorraine Carey asks, how do you deal with sleep deprivation during the multi endurance events? So it's kind of two questions in one there, really. The sleep deprivation, actually kind of funny. I told some of the guys during the transatlantic wave when we were having a chat and they were asking how they were. And I told them I suffered from slight insomnia. It was a bit of a mind game. So I told them, I don't need to sleep much at all. I suffer from slight insomnia. They were like, Dean, I said, yeah. I said, so these events suit me well. I think I'll just keep going. Which they, they didn't know what to make of me altogether. But um, no, like I suppose I'm a morning person. Uh, like I'm up every morning at 5 a.m. anyway. So the morning really suits me. I do get sleepy at night, but I think the key thing is sleeping enough because if you don't sleep enough, uh, you're not going to move efficiently. You get injured and everything else. So if you have the option to to kind of have a bit of a sleep strategy, even if it's only for an hour or two a night, it's definitely a good option. It's not always an option. I think I actually probably deal quite well with sleep deprivation. I seem to be able to manage to kind of go along. It doesn't totally knock me out. I've, I suppose I've fallen off the bike a couple of times in the ditch <laughs> uh, falling asleep but um not too bad I'm not too bad with the with the sleep side of things and then with the eating like I just I eat everything really I love everything but I I, I don't as I said I'm vegetarian so I don't eat meat and and I also think with sandwiches and stuff putting meat in sandwiches and leaving them in your back pocket is probably not good anyway like if anything is going to go bad the meat side of things I got very adventurous with the wraps with training I had fried halloumi and tofu and 
then I figured out if I put a bit of blue cheese and put it in my back pocket and tin foil that it would melt and I'd have like a cheese melty. <laughs> I haven't even realised it. But then I got to the start of the Transatlantic Way and I had actually made up five wraps the night before in the in the B and B. I stayed in Derry and with boiled eggs, which I actually loved during the training, and I tried one mouthful of it and I just couldn't stomach it. So that was the end of me and the boiled eggs and I struggled with the wraps. So I suppose what works in training, sometimes you come to the event and you can be surprised and it mightn't work for you. And the key thing there is just to adapt, not to force it, to try and adapt and find something that you do feel like eating and whatever that is. I went mad into innocent smoothies, randomly enough. I was buying them at petrol stations and just knocking back a litre of them and buying another one and filling my uh, water bottle with it. So I suppose it's calories. And for some reason, I've never even had them before. And that's just what I wanted. (laughs) But do your taste buds or does your taste change as you go through, you know, your body starts depleting certain aspects of... yeah nutrition and things like that that you have turn into kind of wanting having like baby like food you know so it's like anything that's soft and easy to digest is the best so like anything dry is just not good any of those bars that are super dry or anything like that are just you know not good the question I wanted to ask you next myself was, you know, when you're talking about going into the B&Bs and, and going for a sleep or sleeping on the side of the road how do you switch off because when you're riding the bike, you're you're buzzing, you know, you're thinking of if 10 million things going on in your head and then suddenly you rock up to a B&B, you have a shower and you get into bed. But how do you switch off and go to sleep? Jeez, it's actually pretty easy. You're nearly unconscious. You're wrecked. Uh, I know, but is your head not racing though? Um, it's probably half fallen asleep and that's why you have to stop. No, actually, like it, even if you don't sleep, it doesn't matter. It's actually trying to rest and rest the brain. Uh, I actually had, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I had a funny story in uh, The Beast, which is kind of Ireland's adventure race, really. Uh, I wasn't on this year, but uh, Ivan Park, who was actually our team assistant crew in Fiji, organised it. Fantastic event and kind of really the, the longest one in Ireland and one to do. But anyway, the last one we did, uh, I was out with the three lads and I remember we were coming over by the bloody forelands in North Donegal and uh, everyone was falling asleep and the motivation was down and I tried to sing song and everyone said, right, we'll all have a snooze. And I think this was like night two. So we were gone through one night already without sleeping. Uh, and it was about three in the morning. And so we all took off our helmets and the bike and we we're on the side of the road and put our heads in the helmet. And I said, right, how long? And they were like an hour. And I was like, no, less. And there was like half an hour, like, right, we're down to 20 minutes. And I said, right, 20 minutes it is. <laughs> so I, said, I said, I'll put on the alarm. So I had them all sleep. They fell asleep within literally seconds. So two minutes later, I said, right, that's it. Up we get. <laughs> that's 20 minutes done. <laughs> and sure they were asleep for about, I'd say, about 30 seconds. <laughs> they said, geez, I feel great. <laughs> I told them I, they were they were sleeping for 20 minutes flat out. <laughs> they were only asleep for about two minutes. Um, but anyway, so... The, the the moral of the story is it's all in the head you know if you now they thought they had a great snooze and they felt great afterwards <laughs> so we were gone again and I, I heard you've had a funny story as well uh, with um, Dan Harty was it his brother chasing you on the, the transatlantic oh, way yeah yeah so um, yeah so I was down I got off the ferry and um, geez, I felt great off the ferry I actually Arrived to the ferry half an hour before I went, which gave me enough time to get food and everything. And then 20 minutes on the ferry, so, you know, I had time to kind of get ready to, uh, I planned to go down as far as Tralee. So I actually mixed it up. I thought it was 50k. It was actually 90k. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But uh, anyway, it was, it's a fairly flat run, uh, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of it down by Ballybunion and, and that kind of area. I don't know, that's not Ballybunion, is it? Oh, it is. Ballyhague. 
yeah, there was a, a, a car following me, actually a Jeep, uh, with lights ahead that kept flashing. Uh, and I thought, I don't know who it was, what was happening. Like, it's obviously pitch dark. And I said, geez, I must be following the dot or someone, because I don't know anyone that down that direction. And this went on for about five kilometers, and then they pulled in at a crossroad. So I said, geez, I better stop, but maybe there's something wrong. So he pulled in, and he said, uh, hi, I'm Dan's brother. We've been following you, and I've been following you around. Will you leave him a, will you leave him a message? So I put on the, the video camera anyway, and I said, uh, hi, Dan, or whatever I was saying, so I was half out of it. So, yeah, I haven't met you, Dan, but um, <laughs> hopefully we'll meet for a cycle someday. <laughs> and, of course, Dan was leading the, the race last year, but unfortunately got pulled out because of uh, Shermer's neck. I think he was very yeah, close to... Very close to the finish. So hopefully he'll he'll come back. I think he's in the UK. So hopefully he'll come back next year uh, for it. Now, two more questions. One is from Fiona Roos in Roos's Barn Ballina. She said, congratulations, Rachel. When you take part in endurance races, what do you think is the toughest part, the physical challenge or the mental one? Physically, it's always getting to the starting line uninjured. I think that's with everything. Um, I think a lot of people overtrain, um, which is a huge problem, put a lot of pressure on themselves or else undertrain and arrive there totally unprepared. Uh, so I think it's always kind of hitting that sweet spot. And I suppose that's the same with triathlons and with everything else. It's not to burn up the body. Like I always take like four months off a year where I do hardly anything. <laughs> uh, I do a lot of yoga and uh, go traveling, actually usually about six months. Uh, and <laughs> just kind of do what I want to do. And then the rest of it, I kind of, I suppose I kind of push it up a little bit more, up the intensity a bit more. But I think it's really important to like just switch off and not take uh, even a month of really like not doing anything if you don't want to train don't train because you lose the motivation and and everything else and like it's at the end of the day like I'm not a professional and most other people do it aren't that you know you have to keep it entertaining and that you want to do it that it's not a chore and that's why I think mixing up sports is really good even if you do triathlon you know go out and try climbing or do something different you know go surfing or whatever it is and just enjoy the outdoors and been out there and so for the physical challenge I would say I don't know, I don't really find it physically that challenging, any of these things. Like, I've been doing these for kind of so many years. I think my body has built up some kind of crazy resilience to a lot of the stuff, and I'm definitely a lot stronger at the longer things. I'm more about the suffering, you know, the long suffering, <laughs> rather than that short suffering. I'm just, I am I really am not a sprinter, you know. Like, I don't think I'm that slow, but I'm not. Uh, the sprinting style just doesn't suit me. Uh, like I end up at the end and I'm like right okay I'm slightly warmed up now <laughs> uh, so I think physically as well knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are are a big one and kind of working with that as well uh, rather than against it and then the mentally side of things um, like it's all about positive attitude if you want to do it do it if you don't want to do it then don't do it and be complaining about it you know if I want to go out and do a race I'm not going to go oh my god this is so whatever like I've decided and signed up to do this I'm lucky to be able to do it you know, and that's the thing with the mental attitude, you know, the body will follow the rest of it. But uh, if you can get the, the mind sides correct and know what you like, and if you don't enjoy doing something, if you don't enjoy doing, you know, triathlons, adventure racing, well, then don't do it. <laughs> do something else. You know, you don't have to do it. So that's the kind of key thing for me is like realizing that you're really privileged to be doing what you want to be doing and that you found something that you, you love to do and then been nice to yourself on the journey. I think that's really important as well. The, you've mentioned a couple of times is about being nice to yourself, uh, you know, especially when it's time for a rest to actually look after yourself because we put ourselves under so much pressure when we're doing our training or when we're doing bits and pieces that we kind of forget about the self-care piece and sitting down and yeah. binge watching Netflix or sitting down and reading a book is so important yeah. to do that just for 
the fun of doing it insofar as the fun of a bike ride or a swim or a, a trail run or whatever it is that we do actually kind of take the time out to look after ourselves because it affects our bodies and our minds equally. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a big one. Mike Burke has my final uh, audience question for you. And he says, how did you deal with the no doubt persistent question? Why am I doing this? Uh, and was this a particular problem during the night cycling? But you've mentioned that you did enjoy the night cycling and that you feel privileged to be doing what you're doing. So did you ever get that question of like, why in God's name am I doing this during the, the transatlantic way or the eco trail or any of the races that you've done? Um. Not really, though. Not really, no. Uh, I actually started off, I just, I'm just finishing my blog that I'm doing on the Transatlantic Way now, actually, and I started off with a with a quote that I actually arrived at the starting line and one of the competitors or whatever, he was there and his mother-in-law was there and there was a load of people around and I'm obviously the only female there. Uh, and she came over and she goes, don't mind me asking, but, like, I know with the guys, if they just want to pee, like, they just go on the side of the road, but, like, what do you do? And me thinking I'm absolutely hilarious uh, and them all around, uh, I said, well, do you know what? I do the same thing as they do, but in a different position. Uh, and anyway, I thought I was absolutely, you didn't find me hilarious. And Sharon Black, uh, Jason Black's wife, who knows me as a competitor and friend, said, I'm no better woman. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so to put a long story short, your mental attitude, I think, as a female doing these is also quite different to guys. Uh, and I do think you have to think a little bit differently because we have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's one of the things that I learned on this particular event, um, because with team events, I don't know, stupidly enough, I didn't really see myself as being any different to the guys. I treated myself the exact same. I feel like I'm as strong as them. Yeah, I can carry a bag, their bag as well as they can carry my bag, you know. Um, but now this has taught me a lot different and it's taught me to see myself, you know, with different strengths that maybe they don't have which I did use to my advantage uh, and did help because they are physically stronger than me. A lot of those guys, you know, they're, they're able to, if we put, went on a 50 K cycle, they would hammer me. So, you know, I knew that. So I knew I had to stick to my own plan, um, which is something they struggle to do. And I know that because <laughs> they want to push out in front. So uh, I played with them a little bit and did a few accelerations to get on in front of them. And uh, at one time, I think Donica, I said, hey, Donica, how are you doing? He goes, oh, given the situation, I'm not too bad. And I said, geez, if I was any better, they'd have to drug test me. And I fired off, you know. Uh, so, like, you know, you've got a bit of fun along the way. So I think it's the humor you take away. So, like, I took it as, like, a cycling holiday, and I had my plans where I wanted to stop, you know. And, uh, and I wasn't going to deviate for that for anyone else. So if they were on ahead and my plan was to stop here, I was still stopping here. Uh, and that's what I did. And that's why kind of it worked out then because I had a plan. But as I said, that's all, again, because it was in September and not June. You know, I might have thought of it differently. And if the weather had been a bit more pleasant and less Irish. Yeah, you know, like it was it was, it was, was pretty rough, the weather. But as I said, like, I, I don't like that weather, but I have done all my training in that weather. So I was ready for it. <laughs> and uh, Rachel, if there was um, one piece of advice that you'd give to somebody who was tempted to start doing a bit more of that multi-day endurance kind of adventure racing, the eco side of things, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary maybe is, is the word I'd use, or obscure. Like what sort of advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into that side of, of racing and adventure? Yeah, well, I'd say like for the cycling, if you want to get into long distance cycling, I would say definitely look up the Audex Ireland website. They have really good events uh, and it's the best way to get into long distance cycling, if that's what you're into. It's basically a big group of, you know, middle-aged men, slightly in Lycra, that uh, are going through a midlife crisis, I think, want to get out of home. 
uh, uh, with me bringing down the, the age demographic by a couple of years. And it's super friendly and everyone kind of heads off themselves and there's no pressure. The goal is to get to the end. Um, so I would say definitely for for that side of things. For the adventure racing, the best thing really is to link up with people in kind of that community, um, which there are quite a lot of. And hopefully more, there's actually an adventure racing kind of forum starting at the moment as well to try and be more of an outlet for people where they can get it. So I think um, that's actually been set up at the moment as well. But yeah, it's an amazing way to meet people. And if you enjoy long slog days out on the hills, getting wet, uh, <laughs> bringing along a bit of home bacon, you know, a bit of night biking and everything else, it's the place to go. And it doesn't matter if you're just starting out or if you have experience in one discipline or not, um, it's really inviting and you know, it's a great way to kind of explore Ireland as well as other countries. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on the show today. And congratulations again on all that you've achieved so far. And I really do hope to see you in Patagonia in 2021, representing Team Ireland and the West of Ireland, especially. <laughs> That's it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and on our new Instagram page at trytalkingsport. Pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our previous podcast guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe and thanks as always for tuning in. Yeah.